I really do love a good story. And some of the stories that uh, I connect with most, whether a book or a movie, are the stories that have like disjointed parts. That as a story kind of comes to a culmination, maybe about two thirds of the way through, you start seeing how all these disjointed parts all collectively come together. Um, I mean, even, even a good sitcom like uh, something like Seinfeld has that sort of play out where you have all these disjointed stories and characters, but then by the end, all the storylines have some kind of unifying piece. And today, with Jesus' teaching, uh, we get kind of these quick hits on um, some lessons that Jesus is, is teaching his people. And on the surface, it could feel like they're a little bit disjointed of topics, of this topic, and then he moves on to a, wholly, a, a completely different topic and then another topic. And um, t- we've taught on uh, the Sermon on the Mount just not that long ago, three years ago. Um, and in that series, uh, which I think is still available online, uh, we spend some deeper dives into each of these teachings. Um, and I think that's totally reasonable. It's one way to approach it. But for um, this today, how I want to kind of deal with these teachings is actually kind of to watch the thread, to to kind of unpack uh, the sort of overall piece that I think ties all of these teachings together, how they all relate to each other. And remember, if we, uh, coming off of last week, we, we came directly off of Jesus saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as I noted, abolish, fulfill is kind of ancient language that would have been used to to speak of those um, who would interpret and teach and live out the law correctly. Now, what Jesus is saying is that the Torah's teachings, if you want to know how to understand the Torah, you will listen to what I say. And if you want to know what the Torah looks like lived out in the flesh, you will watch my life. And so he's come to do that. And he will move into another kind of rabbinic practice, and we find it in other rabbinic writings, of you have heard it said, and then he would quote um, usually something directly from the Torah or a common teaching at the time. And then he says, but I tell you, and then um, that would usually be followed by an interpretation of that or an unpacking of that. Uh, It's a theological choice to use the word but. Uh, So when he says, but I tell you, um, that word also means also and uh, moreover. There's a lot, it's it's like a catch-all conjunction. And so uh, I think, I think uh, using the term but is a, um, a bit of a leap uh, of, of theological choice, as if Jesus is saying, hey, the Torah says this, but I tell you something different. Uh, that's not necessarily the practice uh, in terms of this language, and I think it's a, a jump to use that word as opposed to saying moreover or also or um, and as a way to unpack that idea th- further. So Matthew 5. Starting verse 21, we got a lot of text to cover. I definitely went long in the first service. We'll see how this goes. The second, we had plenty of technical difficulties that might have slowed us down. All right, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that any, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus will use a series of, uh, you have heard it said, these sort of very big external action-oriented teachings, part of the law. And, and remember, Jesus is in a fairly Pharisaic world, uh, particularly up in Galilee, uh, but through most of Israel at this time. And a lot of that world was a big response to the Israelites' time in captivity, where they wanted to answer the question of how do we not end up in Babylon again? 
And, and so uh, it started a whole schooling system. It started the synagogue system. It started a rabbinic teaching system. It started all these systems to go, okay, we need to know the law and obey it the best we can. And so the original zeal, the original heart was, was for obedience. It was not, there's, there's a tremendous amount of devotion that should be admirable in the sort of Pharisaic worldview. Uh, the problem is there's plenty to critique, and Jesus will do a lot of that as well. But they took the Torah, the 613 laws of the Torah, and they wanted to unpack those and added 3,000 laws on top of that, and then added another 3,000 laws through the mission and the, and the, and the Talmud to it to, to basically fence the, the Torah as well. So if the Torah says you should not work on Sunday or you should not work on the Sabbath, um, they wanted to go, okay, well, let's make sure we define work. And they went out of the way to define just about everything as work. Uh, and so their desire was really to make sure they did not work on the Sabbath. And so that was a, a common practice. Now Jesus comes along and says, you, you shall not murder. Great. It's good teaching out of the Torah. And he says, everyone who has a fixed anger with his brother. Um, and Jesus, I would argue, is calling back to uh, Leviticus 19.17 here. Uh, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And the reason why is because uh, just about all these teachings, there will be a pretty close Leviticus parallel. Um, and there's a question of language and translation, uh, but there's, there's a constant uh, Leviticus actual teaching throughout a lot of this. Now, I want to address the word anger. Uh, there's actually two words in Greek. Uh, we tend to have one. Uh, there's fume and olge. Fume is like a quick sort of flare-up of anger. Uh, if you have kids, you know what this looks like. Um, it's like a very quick flare-up of anger, but then it, it dies out kind of quickly as well, too. It's like a, the, the kind of anger of, of passion in the moment. Uh, Jesus uses olge here, which is a little more of like a, a constant disposition of anger. A sort of a disposition towards others where like they're, they're never going to do anything right and, and you're angry about it. Like everything they do just makes you angry. That sort of disposition towards others. And what Jesus is doing is connecting the two of going, look, you, you've heard do not anger. But I, but I tell you, I mean, it's a bit of more of a heart issue of that, of how you have a disposition towards others. The, the sort of seething of anger which is a, a, pre, a precursor to murder. Now, I want to jump ahead in Matthew a little bit. Uh, Jesus has asked a, a question, and it becomes a, a common question at the time, which is, what is the greatest commandment? And other, other rabbis in history have answered that question, and almost all of them answer with uh, the Shema first. It's this prayer that Jewish people would have said every day, saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Common prayer. Common, common response to what is the greatest commandment of all. And then they would often all have a follow-up command to that of going, and, and often that was sort of their emphasis, the thing that they interpret all of the law through. And so you'd some say like, obey the Sabbath, so obedience becomes kind of the big thing, and, and there were different ways to answer it. And how does Jesus answer it? Those who know the, the question, what's the follow-up command? It's like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it is jumping ahead. I don't think Jesus is, is getting to that teaching quite yet, but I think he's getting very, very close. And, and I think all of these instructions uh, can be kind of filtered through that same thing. It's as if Jesus is saying, that this, this righteousness is being taught, that loving your neighbor is not simply not murdering your neighbor. Like, if that's your definition of righteousness, of, of, of living rightly, is that I have not murdered my neighbor, Jesus is pointing out that's, that's a flimsy righteousness. 
Which is why he simply had just said, hey, I need your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees' version of righteousness was this very outward, action-oriented version of righteousness. And that's what they would say. Great. You're being obedient to Torah because you haven't murdered anybody. And Jesus is like, that's not true. Like, if you're, if you're sitting there holding anger in your heart towards somebody, like that, that's just as much important to God as whether or not you've killed them. And he's starting to connect these ideas of heart and disposition and how we treat others in general with some of the more uh, weighty, the heavy, the bigger things, as they would call it. Otherwise, you were teaching a paper-thin version of righteousness. And so he gives some examples. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with him in court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge or your judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus has took this prohibition, do not murder, which most of us have probably lived out. Um, but points to a deeper issue of sort of hate in our heart, the way we think about others. But then he gets proactive and practical on the teaching of it. Not just, hey, don't, don't, don't hate your brother, don't have anger in your brother towards, towards us, but be reconciled. And what he says about reconciliation goes pretty far. It's like before you go to court, before you go to temple, you want to be obedient to the righteousness I've called you to, be reconciled. Now remember, he is up in Galilee, not just Galilee, like the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It is a long way to the temple. And most of these people are, are, are a decent chunk of people from the north, it sounds like, at the beginning of the sermon. It's like 80 miles. And that's going through Samaria. It's probably longer if you uh, want to go down the road on the outside of Samaria. It's a long way to be. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, when you go down to Jerusalem, you take your offering and you're ready and you've got it there and the priest is ready to make the sacrifice with you. If you realize that there's some relational problem between you and somebody else, stop, hightail it back 80 miles and go figure it out. That's a teaching. And it should feel a little bit like hyperbole because we will see multiple examples of that. Now, does it say in the text, when, it's only when you have something against somebody else. Does it say that? No, no. So it can simply be, you, you might be fine with the person, but somebody might have something against you. Now, is it also simply if their problem is for righteous reasons and righteous reasons alone? No, there's no, there's no qualifiers on it. And so Jesus is really creating quite a, a emphasis on this reconciliation. Like even if somebody else has a problem with you, and even if their problem might even be kind of silly, we got to figure this out. And I think the bigger principle at play is that if anger gets into communal life, that it starts becoming toxic and can destroy. And it almost becomes more important to worship than, than worship. I sort of made the joke about husbands and wives coming here and being angry with each other uh, last week. And, and perhaps Jesus would, would, would teach then, it's like, all right, like if you have started the morning and you are fighting and you have problems, Stay home and be reconciled before you would ever show up and sit there stewing with each other while trying to also go, and Jesus is the greatest, and I'm mad at you, and I hope every word that the preacher's preaching is for you. <laughs> right? Because we can't simultaneously love our neighbor while harboring anger and contempt at them. It just doesn't work. 
And what Jesus is calling us to is a love for the other in such a way that we would go out of our way as best as possible to settle, even, even on the way. Like Jesus is like, do you take every last opportunity? Like if you are walking to the door of the court, you take every last opportunity to settle it the best you can. Like you want to know what the heart behind do not murder is? That's the heart behind it. So I'm going to ask this question, and this question is going to come up multiple times, and I would love a call and response kind of answer to this. And that's the question of what is this section about? And the answer is it's about people. And so let's practice that. What is this section about? Great. How we treat them, how our relationships are with others, how we feel towards our common brother and sister. And so uh, let's keep going. I know there's a lot to parse out in each of these. We can spend a long time going, well, how does that actually play out? That's fine. For another time. Verse 27. You have heard that it is said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for, uh, to lose one of your members than for the whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right, eye, uh, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. This is great fodder for youth groups, right? This is how youth groups uh, teach, like a third of their teaching. Uh, and I've always heard, this is Jesus upping the ante of calling us to, against all forms of lust and any sort of desire and teaching a lot about sexual desire. And, and once again, that the you shall not commit adultery, great, that's one of the Ten Commandments. It's a really important law. Jesus is not diminishing that law. And for cultural awareness, um, a lot of that idea of adultery and the way the laws would play out in those 613 in a, in a pretty patriarchal society is that uh, it was a crime because it would be like theft of another's uh, property uh, in some ways. Now, it's patriarchal. It's for their time. There's a lot of argument to be made that it was actually the way the laws were written were pretty progressive for their time, and that's fine. There were a lot of other freedoms given to marriages that we would look down on and call adultery now that they were allowed to. But um, this, this question, before you even commit adultery, is the question around lust. Now, the word there is the same word that uh, in Greek would have been a translation of the word covet. Uh, so when you get to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, it's the same word that's being used there. And lust itself is not a negative word in their time. Uh, it simply means strong desire. So Jesus sits down with his disciples and he's like, look, I have lusted to have this meal with you. I have strongly desired to sit down with you guys and have this meal. Or uh, Paul will say, those who aspire to be elder, it's, it's, it's a, a worthy desire. It's a worthy lust. It's a worthy thing to have desire for. We use the word lust and we immediately move to sexual attraction and everything else. Um, and in this context, there's certainly that at play. But there's so much nuance to this language. And the typical understanding of sexual desire, um, and, uh, the typical understanding of lust is simply sexual desire, but I, don't, I think Jesus is dealing with something a little bit bigger than that. I actually like the ESV says lustful intent. Uh, I think that gets a little more at the heart of what is going on here. And, and I wanna say this, because there's probably a whole segment here that I wanna help you set free from stuff that like, might've been drilled into you as going and that is sin and that is sin and that is sin and that is sin. Look. We are human beings with a certain biology. And at some point, we do see people that are attractive or fit whatever our definition of attraction is, sometimes physically, sometimes because of the kind of person they are. And guess what? Biology plays a role of going, huh, that person's really interesting. And, and, and maybe it triggers a, a quick response and a quick uh, um, response of, of sort of a, a lustful or physical attraction towards that person. Feelings 
of, I mean, we are sexual beings. That's okay. God designed us to be that way. But the lustful intent, the way the language works is, is really, and I think what Jesus is critiquing, what is the next step beyond that? Does, does that initial sort of going, oh, that person's really attractive, turn into a longer gaze? Does it turn into some text messages? Does it turn into seemingly innocent flirtation? Does it turn into work husbands and wives that are di- relationally different than your home husbands and wives? And does it turn into those kind of things? Does it have an intent to it? Does it take that initial thing and, and move on it to, to, to play it out? And this whole section, this and then the divorce one that's coming up, is putting a lot of impetus on the men. Because um, once again, the, the committing of adultery, the, the divorce thing, a lot of that was laws about the men. And Jesus assumes sexual desire here, but I don't think he's condemning it. Just the act and the, uh, of the will upon that desire. And Jesus moves into hyperbole of the hand and the, the, the eye all being cut off. Um, and hyperbole was super common, super common usage at the time. Uh, even the Mishnah says things like this. This is Jewish writing at the time. It says, if three have eaten at one table and, and have not spoken three words of Torah, it's as if they had eaten sacrifices offered to the dead. But if three had eaten at the table and had spoken words of Torah, it's as if they eaten at the table of the Lord himself. So, I mean, it's it's not verbally. It's like, hey, if you sat down for a meal and you haven't mentioned Torah, it's like you're offering evil sacrifices to death. (laughs) And if you talked about the Torah a little bit, it's like you're dining with God himself. So that hyperbolic language is totally common. And if Jesus is being literal, he kind of picked the wrong body parts to begin with, right? Let's be real. There's other things you can cut off to deal with lust that's not your hand. Uh, And Jesus doesn't go that route. But I think he's simply saying, hey, if your computer is part of the problem, throw it, throw it out the window. If your phone is causing you to be secretive and have these messages and stuff like that, get rid of it. Throw it out. Break it. Whatever it's going to be. Because Jesus is pointing, once again, to a heart condition of how we start seeing others, how we start treating others. Do we have an initial response? And does that lead to maybe an objectification then of the person from that point on? It's property. It's somebody, somebody that I've got to have in some ways. It strips others of their humanity and makes them objects and seek maybe to pull them into your own coveting. Once again, it's taking the paradigm of love God and love your neighbors. Loving your spouse is simply not committing adultery. That's like a terrible definition of a healthy marriage. Hey, how's your marriage going? Well, I haven't cheated on her. Cool. <laughs> Great. But it's recognizing the spouse, other men and women. It's, it's if you're single, recognizing fellow uh, members of the opposite gender as full human beings, worthy of, of, of a posture of seeing them that way, of seeing uh, the other gender as a brother and a sister in Christ. That sort of posture. So what's the section about? People. It's about people. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife and let her, him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. It's quite a doozy. I understand. Matthew will have a much more unpacked teaching of divorce later. He's going to have many more verses devoted to this in a later teaching. So for that reason, I'm not going to go into all the nuance of how divorce works in this conversation. But I want to be real. Jesus is entering a pretty common debate at the time. 
There were pretty, two pretty large um, uh, rabbinic schools, and they disagreed on interpretation of Leviticus, where Leviticus said, hey, um, you, you can divorce someone for basically, um, uh, oh, I forgot the, forgot the translated word, um, anything indecent. And so one school said, hey, indecency is like, it's only infidelity. That's what indecency is pointing to. And the other school is like, well, if she burns your toast, that's something indecent, and you can divorce her for that. And remember, it's a patriarchal society. Men, men were the owners of divorce certificates. It's not something women could request. So when we encounter, this is always good interpretive questions. When we encounter the woman at the well, and she's been divorced five times, uh, I think a bunch of men have always preached, well, clearly she's like a harlot or something along those lines. When... It could easily be she's just been run through the ringer by a bunch of terrible men who have just issued her divorces for all sorts of terrible things. So just, just know when you read your Bible, sometimes we overlay interpretations that may not be in the text. All right. So divorce practices in their time, and particularly because it was actually a little more common to have easy divorces in their time, would often lead to women's being victims of society. Because you're still, once again, you're in a patriarchal society. The, the bedaf, the, 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 the father's house, is like the thing that provides a lot of protection. It provides sustenance, it provides homes, it provides food, it provides land, it provides a lot of that. And divorces are kicking women out of the sort of patriarchal umbrellas of protection and leaving them often marginalized. And, and so in a very easy divorce society, uh, which was kind of going on at this time, it's going to cause a lot of problems. And Jesus' critique was an indictment on the men here and not the women. And this plays out, I mean, gosh, some of this stuff still plays out in the church, right? Like, I'll hear stories of churches where it's like, well, um, yeah, he had the affair and that was wrong, but she should have been dressing a little different or she should have been doing something more at home or something along those lines and start blaming the women as well. But Jesus doesn't play that game. He removes the double standard because hear me. In history, there is one gender who has used lust and power to exploit, to oppress, and to violate the other. And to clarify, it's the men. The men have done that. <laughs> we, we are the problem. And Jesus is like, look, this is not okay. And this divorce culture is not okay. And there's a flow to these thoughts. It's how we treat people again. I mean, we'll see this as we go. And here's the tragic irony is that the church has utilized verses like this around divorce to just beat people up and to judge them time and time again. Yet the very purpose of Jesus teaching this is going, this is, this is a, more than just a d- divorce. This is about how we treat and protect people. Not just the morality of divorce, but what kind of people are we becoming around these things? And so churches will have tribunals and decide and, and do all sorts of church discipline. And I'm, gosh, I'm for some of those things. I'm for clarifying what are good biblical grounds for divorce. I'm for all those things. But the church sometimes uses these things as, as like clubs to just beat people with. And so like, gosh, I know even when I read this verse, a few of you are like triggered of like, oh gosh, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear this section. And hear me. If, it's caused, if we've ever caused you to feel like we've, we've misused these verses to treat you like junk, God, we, were, we repent. That was not, not okay. So what is this section about? People. 
Again, you have heard what is said of old days. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or for, by, for the throne, by the earth, for it is the footstool, by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, and you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. Uh, I'll spend a little more time here to unpack this just because oath-taking is so not something we uh, identify with, uh, but it was a super common practice in their day and very elaborate. Um, there's uh, Leviticus teaching and, and uh, Exodus teaching about oaths, how to take oaths, um, and they would have done it. And uh, they weren't allowed to use the Lord's name. Uh, there was eventually one saying like, hey, you probably shouldn't do it by the Lord because you probably won't follow through on that. Um, and, and so at this point in time, they weren't allowed to use like an oath to, to Yahweh, by the name of Yahweh. So, for example, a couple of farmers uh, have a disagreement on the boundaries of their farm. And uh, this, this was a common thing, apparently, back in the ancient days. And uh, maybe at night, the boundary marker got moved a little bit. And people kept moving it back. And there tend to be a disagreement on exactly when that boundary marker is supposed to be. And they would go to court, and one of them would say, like, I swear by the temple, we are not moving the boundary markers, and, uh, and, and using that as a way to give weight to their words. Not simply say, hey, we're not doing that. It's, I, I swear. And we still do that, right? I swear by my mother's grave, I'm telling you the truth. Or I swear on the Bible, or I swear on all that's holy, or I swear to God. We, we use that to give weight to our words. And, and so... Jesus correctly points out the silliness of that, of going like, look, like, you guys aren't swearing by Yahweh, but you're swearing by everything else that's close to him, and it, and it just goes back to him to begin with. Like, if you're swearing by the temple, well, it's God's house. And if you're swearing by earth, well, it's God's footstool. If you're swearing by heaven, it's where God lives. So you're just doing it anyways. And then uh, Dallas Willard, who writes an incredible book on the Sermon on the Mount called Divine Conspiracy, says this, and I think it's just like, it's so rich. He says, the essence of swearing that Jesus targets here is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant and weighty. The aim is to impress others with your seriousness or piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for your purposes. It's manipulation, or as we say in our culture, spin. And Jesus says it's evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of others. And like, there's a little bit of mic drop to me of D. Willie there. Um, and there's a lot of ways I think we still do this to, our, to this day. Um, if you were uh, single or are single and in the Christian world right now, um, sometimes people really manipulate this of going, the Holy Spirit told me I need to break up with you. Or the Holy Spirit told me I'm supposed to marry you. Uh, I was talking to, to one lady who's like, um, yeah, and I always told them, yeah, I'm supposed to get a CC on that. Uh, and God didn't CC me on that Holy Spirit telling me this. Um, and, and it's a way to verbally manipulate. Because what, what do you say? No. Like, <laughs> like, it's a weird thing. No, the Holy Spirit's wrong. Or you're wrong. Like, that's, that's your two options. And, and, and I think it gets abused. And there's probably a more subtle ways we use this in Christian talk, um, like when we talk about decision-making. And, and hear me. Uh, I'll use this as an example, but I'm going to qualify. Saying things like, God told us we're going to do this, or God is leading me here, those kind of language. Now, I'm not against 
God actually leading that way and using the Holy Spirit to do that. I think there are times that people really do feel it. But I'm also cautious that sometimes we take decision-making that is through the filter of Scripture, that is um, using the wisdom and the Holy Spirit and, and allowing God to do those things, to take two amoral decisions of, of two perfectly reasonable things and making a decision moving forward, but sometimes stamping God's name on top of it. And sometimes it's just making a decision between two things that are perfectly obedient and could be playing out really well. And often, 20 years into the future, you look back on going, oh, I see how God led me there. Or sometimes I go, that might not have been the best decision. And that's okay. But I think sometimes we, we justify it and then outrule anybody else giving us advice on that to go, God's telling me to go do this. Because I've heard it justified for all sorts of crazy things. And it's so fascinating to read the early church because they, the early church finally has this council. It's like a centerpiece of the book of Acts. It's actually literally right in the middle of the book of Acts. And they sit down with an incredible question of going, are the Gentiles part of the family of God? Huge question. Because, like, guess what? Unless you're a Jewish person in this room, we are all Gentiles. <clears throat> it's a really important question. And they have a council meeting. They get, like, all the main apostles together. They have this big debate. And at the end of it, they go, it seemed good to us that this is the, the answer. Seemed good on one of the most crucial questions of the early church. And they walk away. And I think that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Hey, it, it seemed good to us and, and the Holy Spirit. Like, it seems like this is where God's leading. Okay, cool. It's like when, when we cast vision for a church, people are like, God's leading us to this clear thing. And I'm like, maybe. Or, or maybe it's, hey, we've discerned with wisdom, we've discerned in community, and, and we do think that this is um, perhaps where God's leading, but, but we're not sure, and we'll see. Great. Be careful how you manipulate the words. The last, uh, um, dealing with Jesus saying yes and yes and no be no, um, as, as a, a church is predominantly millennial into some Gen Z, um, there's, there's been a shift, uh, and Gospel Coalition has a great article on this, from uh, FOMO to FOBO. Um, and what I mean by that is fear of missing out to fear of better options. Um, millennials tend to kind of function with that fear of better options. It's like we will somewhat commit to just about everything and kind of see if a better thing comes along. And, and even if that better thing is, uh, yeah, maybe I'll show up to your party, but I will find every excuse to stay home that night. And, and we have that sort of um, personality. And uh, we, we constantly kind of half commit to just about everything. Um, and if you're not that person, great. But this is a pretty cultural norm for those that are like 1980 and, and, and more recent. And, and it's a struggle to, to rather than going, no, I don't want to go to that. And that's okay. <laughs> or yes, I will do that. And allowing our language actually to be consistent and not to be in this constant state of like pseudo-committal to just about everything so that you don't actually have to do anything or show up or follow through or commit. And, and so it's a challenge, I think, for us culturally to be like, all right, we're going to be the people that, yeah, when we say yes, we're going to show up. And if we say no, we'll set those boundaries. There's nothing wrong with those. It's like, hey, do you guys want to hang out Friday night? No, I'm an introvert. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, cool. Great. I'm glad you said that. Now I won't be expecting you. Cool. So what's this section about? People. And not doing the, the, the goofy things like name dropping and stuff like that to manipulate. Like, we, we, do, we just do those. It's like, oh, so-and-so was there. It's like, who cares? You're just saying that to give more weight to the experience or to do those sort of things. And the whole oath thing in Deuteronomy is how we treat people. 
So let your yes and your be yes, and no be no. We can't love our neighbors while also manipulating them. All right, we gotta keep going. <clears throat> You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. Now, Torah commandment, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What does this mean? Often we, uh, particularly as in, in those of us who are very Western Americans, view it as that this is a law about what, getting what I'm owed. This is a law that's about the, the sort of how do I get um, the most out of what has been wronged to me? And, and we use it as sort of an offensive. But many rabbis kind of point out, and I think how Jesus interprets it, is, is it's related to um, protect against a system of retribution, letting it get out of hand. So we see this in the Bible. We see this in Sam, Samson's life, right? Samson comes along, somebody insults him, he decides to kill another person, and then it gets like out of hand, and then they're killing thousands at some point in the story. It just goes south. Or the Hatfield McCoys, it's like, oh, that pig I think was mine, and then like a bunch of family members end up dying. It, it just progresses. I, I think uh, Mark Twain goes into it quite a bit in Huckleberry Finn of like, this is how the culture actually works. We, we tend to escalate violence in this sort of um, how we respond to things. But Jesus is, is teaching, all right, that's, that's not the goal of eye for eye, tooth to tooth. That's, that's not what it is. And, and he calls us to not resist the one who is evil. Now, uh, resist, uh, the language actually implies like don't, don't counter with the same thing. Don't, don't 180 and turn back to them and do the same thing back to them. Don't, don't respond in kind to the evil one. And then he gives a bunch of examples of what this can actually look like. It says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I need a person. I need somebody to come up here and be an example of slapping. <laughs> anyone. I'm not actually going to slap you, don't worry. Uh, but I need a volunteer. Thanks, Justin. We could fill our mouths with water and take some tortillas and hit each other. <laughs> um, and so, if I'm going to slap Justin on his... So, whenever there's something in the text that feels like an unnecessary detail, it's really important to go, okay, why is that there? Because Jesus could have easily said, hey, if someone slaps you on one cheek, slap him on the other. But that's not what he says. He points out. Now, if I want to slap Justin on the right cheek, how do I need to hit him? Right, which, someone said backhand or left hand. <laughs> both, both, either one. I either have to strike you with my left hand or I have to backhand you, right? It's the only way to hit your right cheek. I, I can't just do that one of those. And so, yeah, and you can block it. But, so, once again, if you've, if this is still true in most sort of uh, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern cultures. Um, your left hand is kind of your dirty hand. Um, it is what you use to wipe and to do other things with. If you're going to eat in those cultures, you should eat your right hand. Otherwise, you're, you're like communicating to the people at the table, you're a disgusting person. And so... Uh, the right hand was always like your dominant hand, your honoring hand. And so, uh, and it was against, it was, it was dishonorable in Jewish culture, and it was against the law in Roman culture to slike, strike someone across their right cheek. Um, you were allowed to do it to slaves, but that was about it. And so, um, it would have been seen. Jesus is just teaching. If, if someone strikes you in a dishonorable way, that's all I needed out of you. I, I just needed, I needed the visual of you being up here for that. Um, I'm not going to strike you, don't worry. Um, Fair enough. After the service. Uh, and Jesus is pointing out, if someone strikes you in a way that's dishonorable, it's, it's unjust, that's, that's demeaning to you. He doesn't say, let him strike you on the right cheek again. He's like, turn to him the other. Stand before them and say, hey, if you're going to strike me, 
This is not doubling down for you just to get more, but the instruction is not to return violence for violence, but to stay there and saying, respect my humanity enough to hit me correctly as a fellow human being and calling out the injustice in that moment, but not responding in kind and being willing to be struck again. Now hear me, that's not the American mindset at all. When we hear eye for eye, it's like we get what we're owed, Right? Like Toby Keith, we'll, we'll put a boot in your rear end. It's the American way. It's what he sings about. It's how we respond. But you're giving the opportunity in Jesus' way, a creative response to injustice, to see what is wrong and allowing possibility for response. Or allowing others that might have seen the dishonorable moment to respond in kind in that moment. To show injustice and let restitution be possible. Because he keeps going. If anyone wants to sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Um, just so you know what tunics and cloaks are, uh, this is a pretty uh, first century Israelite garb right here. And so um, the outer uh, um, piece is the tunic. Um, you really wouldn't lose, leave your house without it. Um, you could. It would still cover you. But usually you just wore the cloak uh, by itself in your house. And then as soon as you leave, you'd put your tunic on. Um, it, it, yeah, it would be a little more shameful to walk around with just your cloak. And so the cloak was the underpiece, kind of like your long underwear, and the tunic was uh, the outer piece. So if someone wants to sue you for the clothes on your back, what sort of financial state are you probably in? All right, like you have nothing. Like there's plenty of other things to sue for, but if you're suing for the literal clothes that you are wearing, you, you've got nothing. You have literally nothing. And so it's as if um, I would find a homeless person that might have dented my car, be like, I'm taking you to court, and I'm going to take your little trash bag away from you as well as the clothes on your, that you're wearing. And Jesus is saying, hey, if someone's kind of taking someone to court to sue for your tunic, the outer garb, give them, give them your underwear as well. Stand there stark naked in the court to let everyone know that this is not okay. Like be willing to be shamed for the sake of pointing out the injustice that's happening in that moment and that you're not going to play the games that everybody else is playing. You're not going to play the games of retribution. That eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's not a command that we would enter into those games. And it actually puts incredible pressure on those acting unjustly to keep doing these actions that Jesus keeps pointing out, especially in an honor-shame culture. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go to two miles. Uh, there was a Roman law about impressment. Uh, if you were a Roman soldier, uh, the Roman roads had mile markers on them. Uh, and so they were allowed to require any, um, anybody in subjugation to Rome at the time to carry their stuff for a mile. It was legally allowed. They were not legally allowed to, to get you to do it more than a mile. And so as soon as that happened, like, they could be charged with abuse of their position. And so Jesus is like, okay, fine. Don't break the law. Go do what they, they tell you to do. And then keep going. And it's going to put that soldier in a very precarious situation. <laughs> because these Roman roads are crowded. Other people are probably going to see this. And at some point, they're going to be like, hey, um, this, is, this is not okay. You, you're not allowed to do that. And it's putting, once again, the onus back on the, the injustice, kind of creative ways to continue to point it out. They're resisting the evil person is returning eye for eye, utilizing the same injustice. And what Jesus is saying is, nah, I don't want that but I don't want the doormat. I don't want you to just be a doormat for everything that's going on. I don't want, every, I don't want you to be non-responsive. I want you to creatively respond by pointing out the injustice, not playing the game, and be willing to be shamed again if necessary. And we're free from the need to protect our honor. 
which is critical in an honor-shame style culture. And it's inviting others into it. And where Moses limited revenge, Jesus taught to react in creative ways that value your own dignity as a person, value God's image in the other person, and the fact that you won't harm them back. And yet we get on social media and we just respond in kind whenever anybody does something terrible. And Jesus is calling people, a whole community, a people who will keep their vows, a people who will not manipulate each other with their words, a community that is safe for women in the community, a community that will deal with anger and contempt, a community that will work hardest to forgo reciprocity in both directions. If people are image bearers, how, how, how can we manipulate a fellow image bearer? And if people are image bearers, how do we not protect other image bearers from terrible treatment and objectification? And I think that's what Jesus is after. And lastly, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Um, Begs might not be the best word here. Uh, Translations, um, they have to work through. But like Luke 6.30 is a parallel passage. It says, give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And perhaps what is being taught here is not necessarily asking in the terms of begging, but maybe even by criminal force. If someone's going to try to rob you, well... Perhaps at that point, it's preferable to suffer loss or harm than to retaliate and worsen the situation. And if a person asks for a loan or money or goods, we should approach it assuming in good faith that the person might pay it back. But our default position is not to demand it back. So, um, but once again, what is this whole section about? People. Last section. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of our fa- your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. And if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more um, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so love your neighbors and hate your enemy. Uh, troubled people for a long time. They're like, we do not find this in the Torah anywhere. Um, that's because it wasn't in the Torah. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what they found? People writing out in the Dead Sea, the Essene crowd going, hey, love your, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And so it was wonderful when we found those things. And there was a lot of debate in the first century of who is my neighbor. We will find that in Jesus' stories. We will find somebody come up to Jesus going, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And it will be a, a wonderful debate. And for most of Israel, it was an Israelite. That is your neighbor. Uh, it's your brother and it's your neighbor. Uh, and Jesus will blow that up. Let's also clarify the word love. We are byproducts of the romanticism. Uh, we use, and, and not only that, but we have one word for love that in other languages is like four or five different words. And we deal with that. So we have to say like, I love pizza and I love my wife, but we know that those two things are not quite the same way, even if I have a strong love for pizza. Um, or I love Atlanta United, especially when they win at the last second. Things like that, right? And love, the agape love here spoken about is not necessarily about emotional sentiment. It's not, I need to have emotional sentiment and I need to like my enemies. That's not what's being explained here. Not about how we feel, but how we actually act or have a disposition for. To will your enemy good and not harm them. An attitude and act on the will that results in actions. That's why um, sometimes there'll, there'll be the catchy phrase of love is a verb. And in some ways it is. Love, particularly the agape love that's speaking of, is a love that is accompanied by a certain kind of response. Jesus, once again, Jesus gives an example around praying. The answer to persecution is to pray for them. 
And love, as I said, it's, it's a bit of a choice word. We will see this later. Jesus will say, hey, uh, if you're a follower of mine, you will, you will love me and, and hate your mother and father. Now, he's not instructing people to actually literally hate their mother and father. He's speaking of the choice of priority. A, lo- a love for me is an action with commitment towards me that is distinct from, that is a prioritization over how you relate to your mother and father. And so, people are taught to choose between neighbor and enemy. Who do I love? And, and the Jewish response would be, well, your neighbor. You don't, you don't love your enemy. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not how it works. Yes, you choose your neighbor every time, but who's your neighbor? Everybody. Your neighbor, literal brother, an Israelite, your enemy, all of it. And that's why the whole story where the guy's like, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, well, the Samaritan that you all hate, that, that's your neighbor. He's breaking the mold. Now, let me, let, me, let me finish with this. I think this is one of the most radical teachings that Jesus will give. I think it's just the hardest thing. But at the end of the day, it's also the thing that makes us most like God. It's an astounding idea. But we have a God who loves his enemies. Because loving your friends is easy. And Jesus will point it out. Hey, loving people that are just like you, great. Do it all day. Loving family members that are like deeper in the blood, cool. Loving your enemies, that'll be different. That'll set you apart. And Jesus points out, God's love is not, uh, it, does, it is indiscriminate. It falls on, the, like the rain falling on the just and the unjust alike. God's love does the same thing. And showcasing the very nature of how he works. And we are to put God on display And the question is, what kind of God are we putting on display if we do not love our enemies? What's the section about? People. Therefore, must be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, it's highly unlikely any of this was preached in Greek. Uh, There's enough idioms in Hebrew and Aramaic that make their appearances that I think Jesus is simply quoting Leviticus 19 here. It's just a a different choice of words and translation. Uh, It says, speak to all the congregation, to the people of Israel, and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Which I think is probably a better word here in this moment. Because perfect, uh, we're not going to be perfect. Not only that, but perfect is a a bit of a platonic Greek word uh, and idea more than it is a Hebrew word uh, and idea. But holy, we can do that. Because what does holy mean? Set, set apart, distinct, different. We can do that. And that's what God's calls us into. Especially coming on the heels of what Jesus just said. Hey, the rest of the world knows how to love their friends. But I'm calling you to be a, a holy, a set apart people who actually figure out how to love your enemies. Because that is who God is. As Paul will say, while we were enemies, God reconciled us through, God, through Jesus on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's his kindness that ultimately led us to that repentance. It is his love for us. And that's the picture that we showcase. That is the God we communicate when we figure out how to actually love our neighbors. The picture of Christ hanging on his cross that says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's what we're called into. God coming down for his enemies because of sin. We've all rejected. We all are enemies of God, and he reconciles us and makes us from enemies to sons and daughters. And he says that that will make you a child of the Lord, reflecting your father, living it out. 
And the moral fabric of the universe changed on the cross where we don't live under the rule of retribution and revenge, but live under the rule of love, which what? It doesn't fail. Your love of your enemy doesn't fail. It may not accomplish the task that you want it to on this side of eternity, but it never fails. And it is the hardest thing as humans to do. It just is so hard and radical. And you read about the early church and it's one of the things that set them the most apart. And we read stories of Cory ten Boom loving his, their Nazi captors, or Martin Luther King removing a burnt cross from his yard and praying for those that burnt the cross, or the black church in Charleston has experienced murder at the hands of a shooter yet again and loving and forgiving that shooter. It happens, but it's hard, hard work. But this is the picture and the most essential pictures of who Christ is. And so I hope we can see the thread of teaching here. That's a thread, yes, of heart change, but it's a thread of how we actually interact relationally with people in our lives, particularly the, the, the moments that are the hardest. That we love God by how we see people who make us angry. That it doesn't fester, it doesn't turn to name calling. That, that we would even forsake worship to make it reconciled. That we love God and how we treat women, particularly around objectification. That we would be a church, that would be a safe space where women are heard and valued and treated as sisters. That men own their own lust problems as opposed to blaming it on pants or skirts or anything else. That when desire starts turning into action, that we may put to death those sins and that we would move marriage and divorce and all those things birthed out of a place of how do we love our neighbor the best. And may we love God in how we use our words, not to manipulate and spin, be straightforward and honest. And may we love God in how we respond to wrongs, even by enemies, seeking not to be a doormat, but to point out injustices in the world. Not to play the game of injustice for injustice and extend how we even treat our enemies and in so doing, reflect our God who loved us while we were yet enemies and found a way. Greater love has not he than the one who laid down his life for us. And that is what is told when we start loving and figuring out by the power of the Spirit because this is an impossible task to love the enemies that we may have to love those that have wronged us, to love those we're frustrated with, to love those that just give us headaches. And it does not mean that you have to always like them. But it's taking steps of action to go, how do I seek your good?